Entrepreneurs can get stuck in their head, challenged by their thoughts, the voice in their head, and their beliefs. We chat with successful entrepreneurs who share their journey and the lessons learned along the way. The Add Valued Entrepreneurs podcast is edutaining, leaving you with actionable advice to transform your life and create a thriving business that aligns with your values and goals. Our conversations are for entrepreneurs who want more freedom and fulfillment from their work so they can live the life they desire. You deserve it. It is possible. It's time for you to add value. This episode is brought to you by the newly released book, The Entrepreneur Mindset Shift, Growth Characteristics of Success by Robert C. Peterson. Available on Amazon, or you can order a personalized signed copy at addvalue2life.com slash shift. My guest today is Mike McCafferty. Mike is an IPEC certified personal coach and licensed professional counselor with his own private practice. Prior to ending private practice, he was the director of the intensive treatment unit at the Wyoming Women's Prison, a counselor at various drug rehabs and group homes throughout the country, and in student services at the University of Wyoming and Eastern Wyoming College. He spends most of his leisure time annoying his adult children and grandsons. He also enjoys time with his wife, Shannon, writing and laughing a lot. Mike McCafferty and I have a conversation about the inner critic, the voice in our head, and that for him and I both sounds like a Marine Corps drill instructor. We dig into the origin story of the inner critic and how to diffuse the power of the voice and reprogram it for our own benefit. Well, Mike, thanks so much for joining me today. Just looking forward to a great conversation and learning uh, how to handle this inner critic. Oh, well, thanks. It's a a pleasure to be here and I appreciate the invitation. Absolutely. Um, so typically, I just let everybody share a little bit about um, how they got started, and and mm-hmm. mostly it's asking how they got started in entrepreneurship. But how did you get started as as an author and focusing on this inner critic? Mm-hmm. Well, it's actually been a, a long journey. Uh, I first my first conscious awareness happened when I decided to enroll in graduate school. Prior to that, I had a sparkling 2.3 GPA, you know, that was just uh, a little better than a C as an undergrad. And I never had any, it never even occurred to me that graduate school was an option. And I just, it it just never, because I think I lacked that conscious awareness of my self-sabotage. So I just kind of went along and I just thought I'm kind of destined to live this marginal life. And when, what happened was that these a lot of my colleagues started telling me, you know, Mike, you need to get your master's degree. You know, you can do a lot more. And there's other people that you're working with that are um, getting uh, uh, promotions and you're better than they are, but they have their degree. I'm like, oh, gosh. Well, eventually that chorus of voices started to challenge my inner voice. And I was like, they must be crazy. But finally, I decided I'll take one course. And if I don't get an A in that course, then that means I'm not smart enough for graduate school. <laughs> that sounds like a setup. Yeah, that, there you go. Exactly. So, but, so what happens is the course was Saturday morning, three hours, once a week. And it was downtown Philadelphia, the Temple University. And I would drive down there and, you know, get there. And it was so interesting. I still was not aware of my inner critic's presence in that form at that point, but every week, as it got closer to that class time, my anxiety would get higher and higher and higher. And by Friday afternoon, I was working at a, at a at an adolescent rehab. I was I was thinking, how can these people not see how crazy I am with this anxiety? Is just 
pulsating. And uh, but apparently I was a good actor and was able to get through it. But Friday morning or Saturday morning, uh, I would get up and drive about a half hour or so. But this one morning, it was a huge thunderstorm and our electricity went out. It was before cell phones. So uh, I was running late and I'm running out the door, putting on a T-shirt. And it's huge, horrible, horrible thunderstorm. Late rain coming down like crazy. And I get in the car and I drive. And then I, as I'm going, I'm realizing I'm never going to get there on time. I'm never going to get there. And so I'm driving along. And then I think to myself, you know what? You should probably just turn around. This is, you're going to be soaking wet. You're going to be late, you know, turn around. So I did a U-turn, but to me, I can, I call that uh, my St. Paul moment. It was like lightning struck me because I was like, oh my gosh, I felt such a huge sense of relief that like it was palpable. I was like, oh my gosh, what, what the heck just happened? So I pulled over to the side and I started to challenge and I said, you know what? I think the concern was not about just getting out of this class this one time. It, I, as I reflected, I realized that if I miss a class, again, with my sparkling you know, grade point average, if I miss a class that's three hours once a week, the chances of me getting an A are greatly reduced. So I said, I don't care, you dirty so-and-so, you are getting your butt to class. And I walked in and it was, I was soaking wet and it was an hour and a half into the class but I forced myself to do it. And finally, uh, after several more weeks, I, I did get my A, um, but I think it was, um, even then I was not aware of kind of like just beginning to understand how this inner critic was working on me. And I'm convinced I had very loving parents. My mom is still around. Uh, my dad died about 20 years ago, but he was a Sergeant in the Marine Corps and was pretty, pretty tough minded, you know, um, and he, I think, was the basis of my inner critic, which is kind of my theory that people, our inner critics don't originate within us. They originate from our interactions with other people. And when we're kids, and I write about this in my book, Win the War with Your Inner Critic, that in the, in the, um, uh, what happens is kids misinterpret parental intentions and they just read anger or disappointment and don't recognize those things. So um, I use this example with my grandson when he was, uh, he's eight, he's nine now, but he was about seven at the time. And I went over to visit him and I said, how you doing, buddy? He said, oh, I'm doing great, Grandpa. Mom was showing me how to ride my bike. And I said, oh, that's great. He goes, but she got really, really upset with me and mad at me. And I said, oh, what do you mean? He said, she yelled at me. And I'm thinking, you know, that doesn't quite sound like her. I can't imagine what he, she's yelling at him about. And then I said, well, what did she yell? And he says, look out for that car. You're going to get killed. Okay. But, <laughs> but he's interpreting that as she's angry at him and disappointed with him. And so I explained to him the concept of intensity born out of love and anger. And they're two different things. So that's kind of um, where I kind of started to recognize how I forced myself to go back to school again. I got the second A and then I got a third course I took. I got an A minus mm. and I, I was beating myself up about getting an A minus. You know, I don't know. I don't know what the I don't imagine that everybody who goes to graduate school gets straight A's, although, you know, with great inflation these days, not sure. But anyway, <laughs> you know, if if if, um, 
but I had two A's and an A minus. And I remember I was calling my dad up to tell him. And I said, Dad, just want to let you know I got my third grade. And he said, oh, how'd you do? And I said, uh, A minus. And I was, again, it was another earth-shattering event because he said to me, I was expecting him to go, A minus. Now you can never get a perfect GPA ever again. It goes on and on. You know, you, no matter how many A's you get, it will always be 3.999. And instead, he said to me, I'm proud of you, son. And it was in that moment that I recognized my dad had long ago given up that stuff, but I continued in my own head. And so I continued to live, you know, not a marginal lifestyle, but certainly not a, not a go-getter. And I had excuses. And I also think that it's, it becomes a um, Dennis Waitley. I hope you're familiar with him. He's a, uh, I, I loved his work. I haven't, it may be a little dated now, but his, uh, series that I listened to on cassettes years ago was the psychology of winning. And in it, he talks about activities that are tension relieving rather than goal achieving. Mm. And that's what I found that there was an awful lot of tension relieving. And the problem is that they're only temporary reliefs right. and then you got to do it more. So then they become addictions. And uh, that's how that goes. Well, there's so many, so much good in there. Like the, intensity versus anger is is so powerful um for me the, the example i remember was my daughter um, was taking riding lessons and mm -hmm. to be a hunter jumper in in mm -hmm. and so riding in an arena and and you know her trainer is is yelling at her and so she says you know the trainer's mad at me i keep goofing up and she's mad at me i'm like i i didn't see that right like and 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 my daughter was interpreting intensity as, mm -hmm. as anger. And yeah. I wish I'd had that language at the time, because all I mm -hmm. could say was, you know, I'm pretty sure that's not, that's not true. And I wasn't able to help her process that in a better way. And so I, I, I appreciate that, that take on that. And then I, I'm, I'm very familiar with the father's voice. Mm -hmm. My, you know, my father was very intense <laughs> dad. Mm -hmm. And I would say angry, like he, he mm -hmm. definitely had some some anger moments. You know, my mom even accused him of you're going to kill him. So, yeah, <laughs> so, so those those moments were definitely at least real enough, that, mm -hmm. you know, but that that stopped years and years ago. And yet the critic in my head mm -hmm. continued with that with that same voice of Narrative, sure. disappointment or mm -hmm. and it was it was my own disappointment mm -hmm. voiced in my dad's voice. Right. And that, yeah. and that was the challenge of, of recognizing that, wait a minute, that's the story I'm telling myself and I'm putting mm -hmm. those words in his voice. That's not necessarily true for how right. he really feels about me. Uh, and that's, that's powerful once you recognize mm -hmm. that and realize, yeah. wait a minute, I'm putting an awful lot on my dad that isn't really there. Right. Whew. Right. Yeah. Not to mention the impact it had on our relationship. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, and that's, I think it was to my dad's credit. He finally got old okay, and, <laughs> and, and, and worn out, you know? Well, and I mean, I, yeah, I, I, I'm one of eight kids. I'm the second oldest. Whew. And I remember my youngest sister, who was about 10 years younger than me. I had just got married. I came home to visit. And in the past, my dad would yell up the stairs, Michael, come down here. And I don't care what you're doing. I mean, you, if you're on the toilet, you better be running down. You know, I mean, it's just, you got to get down there. So, um, 
And if you didn't, he'd be taking, four, I can still see him taking four steps at a time, running up to grab our button, drag us down. <laughs> and so I, I could tell he was kind of getting a little bit older and our, our relationship had even more of an opportunity to kind of develop when he says to my sister, Brenda, get down here right now. And she yells, no, I'm not coming down. And I'm thinking, oh my God, you know, like where's 911? Yeah, signed her death warrant, you know, all that stuff. And and then it, he just goes and says to my mom, Rita, will you get her down here? And I'm thinking, oh my God, you know, what the heck happened here? You know, this is a completely different story, you know. Um, for, my, for my dad, when I when I came back from one of the things my parents argued about was dishes, and my mom would just you know, she'd cook and then she'd be tired and she'd leave the dishes in the sink. And my dad would just, mm -hmm. just, you know, 20 years yelling and screaming and fighting over these stupid dishes. Mm -hmm. And I came back, you know, and, and, and there at the end of the meal, dad get up and dad washed the dishes. I'm like, wow. <laughs> like, that's, okay. Well, why did it take 25 years right. to figure that out? <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> That's a fantastic solution. Why, why yeah. does it take 25 years to apply? Right. <laughs> yep. Yep. There uh, you go. So that's, and I, th I think the other thing is that the, a couple of the themes that I focus on with folks are our language, which I think the words we tell ourselves are so important. Mm. And also what our experiences are. And this has applications for parents, teachers, anybody. Uh, and and I'll, I'll give you a couple of examples. One of them is the concept of, uh, I don't know. If you're, you're, you may well be familiar with the concept of fibromyalgia. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, I think that if, if we took five people and we all went to a, some research place and they tested us for levels of pain tolerance and we all scored exactly the same, all five of us exactly the same. So now, coincidentally, all five of us go out and we break our pinky in the exact same space, go to separate doctors, whatever. They fix the splint and then they ask us on a scale. Well, first of all, of the five people, of, of the five people, one of them says, I'm not going to a doctor. That's too expensive. You know? <laughs> so now you're down to four. So the first one that goes in there when the doctor says, what's your, your pain tolerance or pain on a scale of one to 10? And she says seven. And it should be seven then for the rest of us. Objectively speaking, that's what it is. However, my wife, she says two. I say 10. And another guy says 10. Okay. So, so then I think that what happens in terms of accounting for those differences is um, the one who said seven was accurate. My wife says two. And then I'm driving away with her in the car and I'll say, she'll say to me, you know, my, my finger is killing me. I said, well, why'd you tell the doctor to two? I don't want him to think I'm a baby. And, <laughs> and, you know, and then me, I said 10 because I'm drug seeking. That's okay. right. <laughs> and then, you know, you know, why never let it, what is it? Never let a crisis go to waste, you know, like, right. you know, so, so I went and the other person though, he said 10 because his, in terms of his perception of any level of pain, he'd been wrapped in bubble wrap his entire life. His parents took care of him. So a, a mere slap on the wrist was the worst he'd ever felt physically. So this has got to be at least a 10. And I think that similarly, we do the same thing with our emotions, that people have emotional fibromyalgia because everything is too hard. They talk themselves out of it. The voices of their critics are enlarged so much 
and what have you. And I think it's it's a um, useful concept to think about what is going on with that other person when they're saying, no, I can't do this, you know? Mm-hmm. And then sometimes I always found that when I say, oh, yes, you can do this, it didn't go, oh, okay, thanks for telling me that, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that you would be nice if it ever did. Mike, thanks. Yeah, 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 thanks. I, I, I wouldn't have known that. And uh, uh, so I think understanding and having empathy for those individuals and recognizing that we can relate kind of on the same level, that for them to have that instinctual knee-jerk reaction is based on some things that maybe they've heard about themselves or they've come to believe, and that becomes an issue. And I forget who it is as a famous philosopher who said, you know, uh, an unexamined, no, I think it was, it was Plato or Socrates, one of those two, an unexamined life is not worth living. And I always say with a lot of the folks I work with, yes, that's true. And an overexamined life will drive you nuts. Absolutely. And that's, I think a lot of people are like, what's going on? What's going on? And it always comes back to what's wrong with me. What's wrong with me? Well, and I, so there's a lot in there. So I love the language, right? Obviously, I think not only do the words we tell ourselves matter, but I think they're powerful. Mm-hmm. And and I think many people don't recognize that they control that voice, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Yeah. And so, so helping people to see they control that voice and they can change the story that mm-hmm. that voice is telling. Uh, those are huge powers. But on the emotional side, I, I agree with you because we're not, there's no class on understanding your emotions and mm-hmm. then how to experience your emotions fully. And so, you know, our sons, you and I both have had sons, you know, deal with that teenage year, 15, 16, 17. Anger tends to be a, mm-hmm. a, a, a feeling mm-hmm. and, and they, they don't understand how to express it and so they either break mm-hmm. their cell phone or they break their car mm-hmm. or they punch holes in their walls mm-hmm. and and really what we're trying to and, and of course our parental wisdom is don't be angry right right <laughs> rather than right. Yeah, yeah, yes, rather yes. than let's <laughs> let's explore this and understand yeah. what is this anger telling you about yourself what is this right. anger telling you about your body mm-hmm. and, and when i realized when i recognized that for me emotions are like the dashboard they're, they're like mm-hmm. a check engine light. And so mm-hmm. I should want to feel all of those emotions because every one of those emotions from sadness to to this happy to that anger are all telling me something not mm-hmm. about the world, right? About myself. Right. And we don't and we don't teach that. And so helping people understand that a you can experience your emotions all the way through you don't have mm-hmm. to stop them and stuff them inside which mm-hmm. creates terrible anxiety and stress which of course right keeps people living in fight flight and freeze mode mm-hmm. which of course the brain handles really well right you know yeah, yeah. It's, it's designed fight flight and freeze is designed for instantaneous life-saving not constant living right um, and so the brain's putting out adrenaline instead of all these other chemicals that were made to experience but those mm-hmm. dopamine and oxytocin and serotonin only happen when you're experiencing those good positive emotions. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but, but but people have lost all of those because mm-hmm. they're so busy stuck in this anxiety that's right. and stress. And, and we have to hurry up and take care of it. So that's we have the emotional fibromyalgia. So drugs, alcohol, pornography, gambling, Netflix. Or, or worse, we things. or worse, we go to the doctor and we say, I just don't feel right. And the doctor yeah. starts giving us antidepressants. Yes. So now we've got the fight, flight, freeze chemicals from the brain. Yes. 
plus mm -hmm. this cocktail that the doctor is giving us mm -hmm. to numb us. Really, yes. that's what those do. Yep. And the body's never given the chance to experience right. the, the chemicals it's designed to. So yep. I, I'm I'm all for helping people experience their emotions mm -hmm. fully and and understand that all of those emotions are okay. Mm -hmm. It's what you choose yeah. to do with them that right. is important, right? Taking responsibility right. for how you react to those things and how you respond mm -hmm. um, is is so valuable. But I I agree. I think our our culture has emotional fibromyalgia. That's a great way to put it. That uh -huh. we don't we don't understand it. We don't teach it. And when you go to the doctor, his his goal is to just give you aspirin to take it away, mm -hmm. right? And, and not really nobody on a large scale is really dealing with it. Right. And that's, and I think that, um, it's our, they talk about societal attention spans. I think, you know, <laughs> it's like hyperact ADHD and ADD seems to be on the rise. I think it's because we're given things in such instantaneous bites that we can never have anything. So nobody ever gets used to actually studying for an hour. You know, that's, that's really kind of crazy stuff. Or waiting and, or waiting three days for a package or, yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 Well, I mean, and, you know, I use that example, you know, to to when and, and I may have shared this with you before about Batman when I was a kid and they had the original Batman Adam West series on and they would say with the power. That's right. Yeah. The, yeah, exactly. And they, and they have at the end of it, they always had a cliffhanger, you know, Batman Robin hanging over a vat of lava or something. And the Joker, they always give him a chance. OK, we'll see you guys later. You know, they don't stick around at the end. So they take off. And they say, join us next week. And I remember as a kid of about 13 or 14 thinking, oh, my God, what happens? How does he do this? I had to wait a whole week. But now Netflix has become what I call crack TV. Because if you want to watch not just a, an episode, you can watch the season and the series. And they pop up right after each other, 20 seconds. And even when my son was showing me the about how to do Netflix on earth, he goes, 20 seconds. Screw that. I'm not waiting 20 seconds. You know, like, oh my gosh, you know, the skip, and, the skip, the intro, skip the credits. Yeah, skip, yeah, 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 skip, yeah. Skip, skip, skip. Yeah. And, and then, and then when they, they get you seeing what you like at the bottom of it, you know, they say, oh, if you like crack TV, we, we recommend alcohol TV or marijuana TV or heroin TV, you know, and people are like, oh yeah, yeah. I want to see that too. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, how many people want to at the end of their lives to be able to say, I remember the entire dialogue of every Seinfeld episode, you know, I mean, <laughs> it just doesn't work for me, but you know, another thing I was just going to mention is that with the language is that I think that people, if we find ways, we will find ways to put ourselves down. And I think even in some of the popular literature, the intention is not to put us down, but it's still, whether they realize it or not, is having that impact. And so when people say I have a bad habit, um, I don't think that such a thing as a bad habit exists. There's detrimental habits. And I think it's, it becomes bad as a way for me to beat myself up and say how bad I am and how much of a loser I am because I can't overcome this habit and all that kind of stuff and get some twirling in that. And then of course, if that's, a, if I'm a smoker and I beat myself up and I feel horrible, well, you know what? I need to relieve the tension. So let me light up, you know? And so we just continue that process. And I think of those things, I, don't think of bad habits. I consider them misapplied strengths. Because oh. if you consider when anybody starts smoking cigarettes, normally it's because they want to be an adult, they want to look cool, they want to be mature, whatever. It's not till later 
when they're addicted that they realize how oh, this stuff is not working for me anymore. So originally it was a good idea and it was, just, you know, I was able to accomplish the goal. And now I'm saying, oh, so if I refer to it as a misapplied strength, I don't have to beat myself up. I can say, you know what, let me try something else, you know, and how do I be kind to myself in that situation? Well, so many of those things are, we feel like we're, they're out of control, right? Like mm -hmm. I'm, I'm addicted to that, right? I, I can't, I can't change. And they, and, and those are the language that they use. Is, I, mm -hmm. I can't, I can't change rather than yeah. saying this no longer serves me. I'm getting rid of it. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and then they beat themselves up in the process for every time they fall short. And then they, you know, become more acclimated to just running and getting what, what they were avoiding in the first place. Oh, so, so powerful. And, and the truth is, if you, if you make the choice in a different way and you use different mm -hmm. language, right? Like, uh, you know, even the language of saying I'm a smoker trying to quit mm -hmm. versus the language of saying I'm a non-smoker who's getting, right, right. Right. I mean, that, that identity shift is powerful mm -hmm. and, and helping people see that the story you tell yourself is mm -hmm. so powerful. One of the mm -hmm. lessons for me was, was sarcasm, right? I, mm -hmm. I grew up, I was pretty quick witted and, and mm -hmm. sarcastically, I could, I could nail people pretty easily, pretty constantly. Mm -hmm. And at one point there was a realization that this is mean. Yeah. It's mean spirited. It's not, it's not, it's not cute. Right. Mm -hmm. and, and recognizing that our culture has created this, this little device and say, mm -hmm. well, it's just, you know, it's just an innocent jab. It's out of love. It's no, it's mean. And, mm -hmm. and we're using words to hurt people and back to hurting the people closest to us. Mm -hmm. And, and, and yet we culturally people are, are, you know, okay with it. Right. They, they mm -hmm. let it go and excuse it. And, I think we just undervalue the power of words and we undervalue right. the power of the stories we tell ourselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so important to keep, keep on checking that and keep on, mm -hmm. you know, ask, I think curiosity for me, it's, it's incessant curiosity, right? How, mm -hmm. how mm -hmm. can I change this? How can I shift this? Um, how can I see myself stronger? Right. Asking those questions really can make a huge difference and helping my mm -hmm. clients ask, Mm -hmm. those better questions is really mm -hmm. powerful to change their story. Right. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And I think I wanted to just kind of touch on a, an example that happened uh, when I worked at the women's prison. I was the treatment director for the intensive treatment unit. It was a substance abuse, 18 month, 12 to 18 month long program in Wyoming. Wow. And uh, it was interesting. They, <laughs> it's kind of funny because you could have, they called it Mr. McCaffrey's rule. Okay. And when they would like go crazy about this, when when a new person would come in, we would have a person, sit woman sitting in a group of about thirty women, and they've got all these terrible, um, uh, you know, horrible, horrible, life wrenching, horrible experiences, and they would sit there, and these women were at least the youngest, I think, was maybe twenty four, the oldest in their fifties, and they would start emoting and crying, and you know, like snot coming out of the face, everything coming down, and the instinct of all the other women was to run over and give her a tissue. <laughs> and that's Mr. McCafferty's rule. We don't do that. Okay. No, you can't do that. Mr. McCafferty doesn't like that. Well, they said, why we're trying to be comforting. I said, well, there's two things. First of all, 
She's 24. She's a grown adult. She can get a tissue that's three feet from her. You know, that's one thing. She doesn't need you guys to have to tell her she needs a tissue. And the second thing is, you guys all want her to feel better because it might touch on something you're uncomfortable with. So we ain't doing that, okay? You know, mm, so, so powerful. Yeah. So they, a lot of them didn't like me sometimes. You know. Well, and <laughs> and there's a tendency, right? That that it's so easy to be the victim. Yeah. And and I I, I mean, there's definitely people that you know we want to. <laughs> I love it. You're, you want her to stop telling her story and feel better because her story's hitting stuff that mm-hmm. <laughs> hitting stuff that you you're dealing with and right. or not dealing with <laughs> as right. the case may be. Um, it's it's so powerful in a in a group setting, especially if somebody can, you know, get to the root of their story and can really mm-hmm. start. We can't change the events. Obviously, right. we can't change the events that have happened in our past. Yeah. But we can absolutely change the story we tell ourselves about them mm-hmm. and how those how those things can empower us or disempower us right mm-hmm. so is the story you're telling yourself serving you or, or is it taking away your power right right i i absolutely agree we will be right back after this short break this episode is sponsored by the newly released book the entrepreneur mindset shift growth characteristics of success by robert c peterson available on amazon or you can order a personalized signed copy at addvalue, the number two, life.com. Addvalue to life.com forward slash shift. If you enjoyed the show, please like and subscribe, leave a review, tell your friends. Welcome back. Let's get back to more greatness. It's interesting, too, that I think um, some people that I've talked to say, well, you know, you've got kind of a jaded view because you're. You worked at the prison and worked in inner city rehabs and all this stuff. I said, you know what? No, the issues are common. I, it doesn't matter where I go or live or who I talk to. The issues are the same. I use those examples because they really illustrate, you know, a, a, a discrepancy, not a, not a major discrepancy between where we are, where we would like to be. It may seem like, you know, uh, when uh, people change their behavior and a guy who was living out of a dumpster had been lost his family, he was had a great job, all that stuff. And he got to prison and had to deal with things there. It happened a couple of different times. Anyway, he said to me, you know, Mike, the third time I went to prison, I decided it might be time for me to do something different. You know, and I'm thinking he lost a job that was like a quarter of a million dollars like 20 years ago, 30 years ago. He was really well a family, everything. And I said, you know what, Bob, um, my wife yells at me and I start thinking about changing. Okay, I don't have to wait until I am so far down that that's what it has to be. And, you know, even uh, uh, I think recognizing that the stories that we tell ourselves and how distorted they get Mm. and how defensive we get, especially if you add, you know, other uh, intoxicants or what have you. (laughs) And, uh, you know, and I found an interesting thing the other day that. There are more marijuana dispensaries in Denver than there are McDonald's and Starbucks combined. You know, so uh, what does that tell us? You know, so people are again anesthetizing rather than actually dealing with things. And again, if I don't accomplish anything, I don't care. Right. <laughs> well, and and I, and there's a lot in our culture that that have chosen that, right? I mean, mm-hmm. the, 
it's easy to be a victim and and it's easy to it's obviously it's easier to to be a victim mm -hmm. and blame the world blame god blame you know mm -hmm. nothing nothing works for me karma's against me you right. know, all, all these things and of course the more you tell yourself what all of that guess what yeah. <laughs> the more you get more of the same yeah and, and and the bottom line is until you take 100% responsibility for your own life and your own thoughts right you'll continue letting the world blow you about right, right. and if and again if, when people say to me i'm my own worst critic i tell them of course you are you've been at it for 20 years and practice makes perfect you know so if you and thinking about it, i also think and obviously you do as well i like to use humor and i used to tell the women at the prison when they can laugh at themselves about their stories not in a down putting themselves down way that's a real sign of health that's you're moving in the right direction and I always tell people when they say to me, you know, I, I worked with a lot of people with substance abuse issues. And, oh, I wish I didn't have that alcohol gene. I said, you could focus on that. You know, I didn't get the tall gene or the thin gene, you know, but or fortunately I got, one. I got the good looking gene and the smart gene, you know, so there you go, you know, and, and then when people laugh as loud as you do, then it really starts to affect my self-esteem because it could happen. You know, there, there's a little bit of truth in that. <laughs> So, yeah, I, I do think that's a very important point is how do we challenge those things? In, and if we do it, I find that when we do it in this attacking, get out of here, it makes them bigger. You know, it's just like you tell a kid who's teasing you to stop it. They don't stop. They do it more. So I think there's some things that are helpful for people to come to terms with their inner critic. Well, and, disem uh, disempowering it, right, when it's when it's not speaking truth, mm -hmm. you, your first step is to disempower it. Same way with the bullies, mm -hmm. right? Is mm -hmm. if the bully, if the bully has no impact on you, he'll quit picking on you. Right. 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 But when you fight back against the bully and you're, you're, you know, you're bawling and saying, that's not true. <laughs> you're so mean. But yeah. the bully loves that. That's what they want. Yeah. You know? But if you're like, whatever, you yeah. know, <laughs> it's, it's crazy how, how much we, you mentioned it right that we're our own worst critic and and the truth is you can change that critic why mm -hmm. why not be your own best fan right why not be if nobody else in the entire world wants to be your friend why can't you be your own friend right and right. and let that voice in your head be be your friend and what's really crazy when you do that mm -hmm. you'll have all the friends that that you'll ever yeah. need because yeah. now yeah. you're putting out a completely different vibe into the world and you're right. attracting you're attracting those kinds of people yeah and i i agree i think the when my wife and i ran group homes a couple of different times mm -hmm. and one of them was a young man and it just cracked me up he was just apoplectic beside himself he was so mad that they were teasing him okay and calling them names and i said what names do they call, you know? And he was telling me, I said, what ones don't you care about? And he gave every filthy word you could imagine. They were calling him this. He didn't care about that. His name was Kirk. And he was triggered by Kirky, Kirky, Albuquerque, okay? Because of the meaning he gave to that, but he could disregard all the others, you know? So, <laughs> and it's just amazing to me that when we step back and can laugh about it, go, yeah, that's kind of, interesting yeah why am i doing that you know and asking ourselves that question i think it opens up some doors for us well and it it's crazy how much our own attitude can impact the bullies mm -hmm. like 
you know, if you're a victim, you're the ones the bully is going to pick out of a crowd, mm -hmm. right? If if you're saying I'm not a victim, even if you're just saying that to yourselves, the bully is going to go right by you, and mm -hmm. and it's crazy. I I had the opportunity. So in eighth grade, I was I was a tiny little skinny kid and short and not athletically capable at all. Mm -hmm. So I got picked on my, the insurance guys, twin sons just brutalized mm -hmm. me. And another guy that was their buddy, they just constant. I, I hated school. I hated life, mm -hmm. but our family moved. And when we moved, I said, all right, I'm, I actually changed my name. I was called Bobby mm -hmm. right up all the way up until eighth through mm -hmm. eighth grade. And we moved to Denver and I said, Nope, my name, my name on my birth certificate is Robert. Mm -hmm. I'm going to go by Robert. And in ninth grade, everything changed. And I, and, and all it was, was I changed. I said, no more. I'm going to enjoy mm -hmm. school. I'm going to be, I got, I had perfect attendance. I was on the football team. I had the lead mm -hmm. role school play mm -hmm. and everybody wanted to hang out with me. Mm -hmm. It flip flopped completely. And the only thing that changed was what I believed about mm -hmm. myself. Yeah. And, and, I wish I'd applied that power sooner in my life because now looking back, I'm like, oh, look how powerful that that switch was. Oh, so you can have your inner critic beat you up for not doing what you can't change. I mean, truly, I think it's a lifetime pursuit, right? Like that mm -hmm, inner yeah. critic is he's a sneaky booger. Yeah. And and no matter what level you are of success, he's still going to go, wait, what? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's not going to go away he just yeah. the difference is what you choose to do with it right what right you to, right and, and i think go, go ahead. ahead i'm sorry i was just thinking that our power to actually program that voice mm -hmm. is is so underrated right like yeah <laughs> we need more people teaching people a how to recognize when that voice is lying and b mm -hmm. how to how to handle it right how to how to reprogram mm -hmm. it and get what you want right now, I agree with you. I think that in my experience, it evolves as to because as I one of the things I always say is that the um, progress is the enemy of our comfort zone and our inner critic guards the comfort zone with ferocity. So it doesn't want anybody to do something that's uncomfortable. Oh, my gosh, you feel uncomfortable. So I have to self-medicate or whatever. And and I think also that it's about the changes that we make, you know, for, well, for me, with me, as I pushed through and I first started like fighting the inner critic, like, Oh, I'm going to go to school. I'm going to get this. And I would, but like, it really sucked the joy out of it. You know, it was like <laughs> so much harder. And then I realized that I didn't have to fight myself on that. But then what happened was I would set a new goal and my inner critic would say to me, Oh, Mike, look how much you've accomplished. You don't need to do this. Come here, give me a hug. Let's have a cupcake and sit and watch Netflix, you know? And I'd be like, okay, yeah, it'll only be for a minute. And then I wake up with crumbs coming out of my mouth, you know, five hours later, I wake up at nighttime. And I think that um, it does evolve to meet the circumstances because it's still got that same goal. You, deserve, you deserve this. Look, you've earned it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Come here, give me a hug. Oh, okay. Okay, I'll give you a hug. Yeah. You deserve yeah. you deserve a break. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. You, oh my gosh, look at you are so un unbelievable. You know, and I think, you know, I was also working as a therapist, and it was probably around. I don't remember the exact times. They get a little 
mixed up sometimes, but I've worked at this that agency for three years when I got my graduate degree or started it. And, and I remember I have a, I'm well known for a pretty good sense of humor. Now, the thing is that I overuse it. It became a misapplied strength for me at the workplace. And so everybody just thought I was a joke. And so whenever they would say something in a serious meeting, they'd all look at me for like, where's the punchline? And I would deliver one, you know? And then I started to get upset because then I would try to say something serious and no one would listen to me. And I had to make a conscious effort to not, you know, hit that softball out of the park when they let throw me a big, lob me a big softball. Just don't. And it took me about nine months to retrain them that it wasn't I was a joke who happened to be a therapist. I was a good therapist with a sense of humor. And because then I had reworked those relationships, but it also began with me doing that, recognizing it within myself, instead of spiraling out and going, oh, you know, these people were so mean and I'm, I'm a victim and, you know, oh, I, I should quit this job, you know, all that kind of good stuff. <laughs> yeah, it's powerful, man. That, that little, that, that little voice. And, and of course, you know, if you get your popularity by being the joke, then Mm -hmm. yeah yeah oh yeah that foot was great yeah that's where you get stuck but then wait mm -hmm. a minute i'm i'm smart <laughs> i'm serious yeah, yeah. Right, that, right, that, right. that was a great idea <laughs> yeah yeah and if you think about it how many comedians do you hear about that either purposely or otherwise kill themselves mm. you know and so they they're good at putting on a front and also i read recently that counseling or mental health workers have a statistically significant uh, rate of suicide. Mm. And I think that also has to do with their inability to separate and, you know, and some of those kind of things. But, you know, it, it, it also is, uh, you know, how good when uh, women at the prison also would say to me, you know, Miss McCaffrey, I miss my kids so much. And I, you know, I was such a horrible mom and I did all these terrible things. And I said, let me know if beating yourself up helps you be a better mom then keep it up, okay? And I can even send you a text every day telling you how messed up you are, okay? <laughs> <laughs> so I don't want you to forget, you know, man, are you messed up, you know? And so them, and if we think about it, when we are beating ourselves up, how can we put our best foot forward? Mm. If we're beating ourselves up, we either avoid it then, or we come out with a lot of that anger and frustration without being able to Which is so, It's so disempowering. Right. I mean, really, all you're doing is disempowering yourself by by repeating that story to yourself. Oh, I'm terrible. I'm terrible. I'm terrible. I'm terrible. Mm -hmm. And of course, that you're going to show up in the world looking terrible and, and feeling terrible, you know, rather than being a, a good person who's made some mistakes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, that's I think uh, when also when I talk to people about affirmations and uh, positive self-talk, they say, yeah, I try it and it doesn't work. And I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, okay. Well, why do you think it doesn't work? Well, I don't know. I say it a few times and I forget. I said, who do you think is undermining you to forget? You know, who who is telling you this isn't really true? You shouldn't believe this. This is coming. Mike, he's a knucklehead. Don't buy what he says, you know, whatever. And I said, I think that it's it's important that when people do use affirmations, because I remember, I didn't believe them either. But when I, what I would try to do is get my emotions behind it and mm. say it in a positive, enthusiastic way, as if I did believe it, it tended to stifle that 
you know, disbelief. I mean, it was like cheering up a football team, you know. I, I could start to feel that. And I, I think they're incredibly powerful if we choose them correctly. And and um, I had one that I used for myself, and I had to change because it was uh, I'm high and alive at 175. And when I worked at the rehab, I had to change that, okay? I couldn't very well use that one with them. They didn't appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, the you can't even talk about brownies here anymore without yeah. <laughs> being misinterpreted. Right. That's that's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. That's and I always think it is it is good to have a sense of humor in ourselves. And um I was sharing with a couple of people when COVID first started that uh and I, I talked a little bit about how to rise above the pandemic. I, I do a weekly Facebook post. Uh and uh anyway, the um guy at the coffee shop. Uh, when COVID first started, he's wearing a, a mask. And so we all had to wear masks, of course. Okay. And I know the guy, really nice guy, Azadine. I can never remember his name, but I remember where the license for his place is on the wall. So when I go in and he says, hi, Mike, I can go over. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Azadine. Yeah. There you go. So anyway, um, at the end of the thing, he gives me the coffee and I walk out and he goes like this for an elbow bump. And I had no idea what that was. So I start shaking his elbow. Okay. So about two weeks later, my my daughter, she's with me this time, and Azadine does this, and I shake his elbow again, and she goes, Papa, that's an elbow bump, not a shake. And I go, well, you know, some people might think I'm an idiot. Others might think I've innovated, and I've come up with the elbow shake. So when that starts making its rounds, you can say your dad started that. You know? <laughs> yeah. She probably didn't take it that yeah. way. No, no, she, yeah, I'm not doing that. You know? <laughs> yeah, but I'll be on the lookout to see if there's other people that do that same stupid thing, you know? Uh, yeah, whatever. <laughs> that's awesome. Well, obviously, you mentioned your sense of humor. Um, so, how important is, is play and fun? Oh, I think it's very, very important. And it, it also is um, not to say that I think having breaks and, and doing certain things is always good, but also, being able to find the humor in everyday stuff are kind of like mini little vacations, you know? And so when we don't just get so caught up in what we're doing and we lose the forest for the trees or see how absurd something we're doing, or if it is absurd, laughing about it rather than being angry and beating ourselves up and blaming the world and, uh, you know, how do I go out and succeed after that? You know, so I think it's very important. Yeah, I think... Uh... Well, first of all, I think, like I said, so many people are stuck in this fight, flight, and freeze mode, right? That's what's creating all this anxiety and stress in our culture. And and humor and play can be a break from that and allow mm -hmm. the body to cycle some of those some of those mm -hmm. chemicals we are supposed to experience <laughs> when right. we're happy right. and joyful. And, yeah. and, and, and I think people would be surprised when they get those because, like you said, they're mm -hmm. self-medicating. They're, they're trying all these other addictions to to either numb the feelings that are or emotions that are overwhelming rather than allowing themselves to experience. And then of course, allowing their brain to, to fully cycle mm -hmm. all of these chemicals. Yeah. It's designed to cycle. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, and it's also, I think when you say that it's so important because if we are constant, if we never have that experience, we never get a little, you know, if a kid never learns how to feel what it's like when he's, skins his knee as a man, I fall down and I'm crying in the puddle in the sidewalk. You know, it's we it's important to allow kids to have those experiences in a safe way 
and in the context and explain things to them rather than taking all that stuff away from them you know, mm. because it really does that i think it, it lowers the bar so that the less i'm used to the less i feel like i can tolerate and oh. there's a I, I look for it it's not on youtube anymore i wish it was but there was a commercial for miller beer and it says you just hear this guy's doing something in the background and and the guy says the voiceover says you could have used your spare time to learn a new language or write the great american novel instead you chose to do this do you have any idea what this was build build a beer pyramid okay? and it says you chose to do this and then it goes bravo you know and i think people do that though they that's how they you know get caught up in that stuff and it's i was pleased that somebody recognized how ridiculous it is but when we're in the middle of it we don't well and and obviously our culture has celebrated you know everything from alcohol now to marijuana to all of these ways of mm-hmm. of numbing our feelings or or you know adding stimulation or removing mm-hmm. stimulation whichever direction you're choosing to go mm-hmm. um, rather than just fully experiencing uh, right. the stimulation that our body was designed with which is pretty incredible in, in right. and of itself um, but so few people are actually are actually experiencing it I think that that it lowers our tolerance even further because we're used to running from everything. And it used to be, you know, a club on the head was a big deal, but now a flick on the back of my neck is a big deal. And I react the same way to it as if that's what happened. And uh, so I, I absolutely agree with you. Well, you grew up with a, a Marine Corps Sergeant dad. So having mm-hmm. been a Marine Sergeant myself, I, uh, I I think about how the levels have, you know, we soften, <laughs> we're softening the, the, the blow and right, right. pretty soon you're not even allowed to yell or, <laughs> you know, the, yeah. it, it keeps transitioning to something softer and softer, but you, you don't want soft Marines. No, no, I, no. They, they have a job to do, you know, and, I don't want to hear about it. Well, they're good at hugging. You know? That's right. You know. <laughs> and, but, but the truth, I, I think there is absolutely some truth to our culture softening the blow, uh, you know, mm-hmm. protect, overprotecting our kids to the point where mm-hmm. they don't fall down and they don't scrape their mm-hmm. knee and they don't experience some pain. Right. More and more, I think it's kids aren't allowed to experience emotional pain, right? We protect absolutely. them from, you know, mm-hmm. we protect them from the pet dying and the family member dying right. and the, right. the experiencing these and processing grief because the parents don't want to deal with it. So they obviously don't exactly, want to help, yeah. help their That's kids, exactly, yeah. help their kids I, deal with it. And then their kids are so ill-equipped to deal mm-hmm. with these emotional realities, right? You're going to fall in right. love and you're going to, you're going to get heartbroken. Mm-hmm. Those things have to happen there. Yeah. That's part of, you know, and, and even some of the bullying, we, I, I agree. Bullying is a terrible, terrible thing. And yet right. there's an element to bullying. That's just standing up for yourself. And there's mm-hmm. an element to bullying that, that prepares you, makes you a better person, mm-hmm. right? In the boardroom, when the other guy mm-hmm. says, you know, well, that's not true, blah, blah, blah. You've got something to stand on because, mm-hmm. you know, and so I'm not saying we justify bullying in any means, but I think there needs to be some some intercommunication sure. skills that are developed. Yeah. I think they're developed in in the rough, right? Like yeah. you said, they're, yeah. they're developed when you're scraping your skin on the ground and stuff has to hurt for us to make a right. change, for us to do something different. And if our dialogue, mm-hmm. our conversations never hurt, 
like my wife and I've been together a long, long time, but the things that made our relationship stronger and better wasn't the hugging and kissing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, it was, it was the, the rough and ready grinding and pushing through the challenges that mm-hmm. makes our relationship so much stronger. And, and so many people, like you said, are trying to avoid that. Um, and that's the sad, they're, they're avoiding growth opportunities. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Hmm. Yeah. I think that you're, you're absolutely right. And that the protecting from any pain whatsoever, emotional, whatever, we make excuses for things. We hide things from people. Now, I think there's a difference. We don't exactly have to come up and, you know, lower the boom on them. <laughs> but I think at the same time, you know, uh, there's there's ways to talk to kids in age-appropriate ways. And I think you hit an important point. If I don't talk about it, it's because I'm very uncomfortable with this. Mm-hmm. And also, I think that what holds a lot of people back is they've been holding on to this for so long. If they express it, they're afraid they're going to get lost in it and never come back from it. So it becomes an additional reason not to get touch that subject because, you know, and people say, well, I'll just, I just saw red, you know? Oh, okay. Yeah. No, you had a thought before you saw red. And the thought was this, it's not, Oh, this is a happy person giving me money. That wasn't the thought. The thought was this is a dangerous situation and I need to hit them. And, and I think, Again, going back to the idea of the misapplied strengths with one of my kids, young guys, 19, was um, uh, had come out of prison and he came into our rehab and somebody offered him a cigarette. It was kind of a weird story, but he punched the guy in the face and we sat and I talked to him about it. And of course, there's zero tolerance for violence. But I talked to the uh, director and fortunately, I had a good relationship with him. And I said, look, he's grown up in these places and apparently that's a sexual come on if you take a cigarette from somebody, somebody offers you a cigarette Whew. in the places where he'd grown up. So there's, he a, lot of, there's a lot of message there. That's that's right. So <laughs> he he punched the guy in the face. Anyway, so we worked it out. He apologized. The kid accepted it. We changed the orientation process so that new people coming in would understand that. We're not going to have another example. Anyway, he came into my office and he's crying and says, Mike, I can't believe it. That's what I did was I punched this guy in the face. I said, Rich, Rich, love. I agree in that circumstance, that was not a good thing. However, that's another example of a misapplied strength. You know, if you and I go to prison, you will succeed much better than I will. Okay. Cause you know how to fight. Okay. But I'm not going to prison. Okay? Right. Now <laughs> there's a few other possibilities. If you become like an MMA fighter or you're walking down a dark alley and there's a bunch of gang members there, then fighting is a really good thing. But let's make that about 1% of your person. And let's develop the other skills. And if you need it, you can pull that one out. You don't want to just make it go away. Right. Well, and it's and recognizing that really it's just a, a learning a different culture, right? Mm-hmm. And now you're trying to help him transition out of that culture into a new culture, which is really new for him because he hasn't really right. experienced it in this way. Yeah. That's so challenging. So what what how have routines helped you in taming the inner critic? Well, I think it's, if there's a book that, quite frankly, I wasn't a great fan of the book, but I love the, the title. And it was Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a great example of uh, uh, what I do is I start to recognizing it. And I rec- recognize my inner critic earlier and earlier, mm-hmm. you know, sooner and sooner so that I don't get stuck. Because like when people say, um, you know, uh, 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 what is it, uh, Isaac Newton's... Uh, um, 
a body at rest tends to stay at rest and a body in motion tends to stay in motion. And I would say, yeah, my butt glued to the couch tends to stay on the couch. And so I try not to make that a, a, a pattern because I will. It will be where I live, okay? <clears throat> and so I think having a schedule, whether you're working full-time, part-time, retired, I think it's good to have routine to say we're going to do certain things today and what have you, because it also helps us stay on track. And they don't have to be. Today, I'm going to climb Mount Everest. <laughs> today, it could be I'm going to walk for half a block or, you know, for 10 minutes, you know. And if we make it so unrealistic, I believe that's also the inner critic kicking in because oh. it wants us to be perfect, but we can never accomplish it. So now we can just stay at home and, you know, do something entirely different and medicate our uh, emotional fibromyalgia. So I think it's it's I think it's very very important for people to have routine, and even if they do, we're going to have a routine of when we, you know, talk tonight, talk this week or whatever. You know, I think there is a good, and even if the things like watching a TV show or something can be a family time. You know, like let's sit around and have this good time together. So I think it's a very important point. Absolutely. So what has been the impact of being an author? Well, I think it's, it's, to me, it's hopefully people will appreciate. I've had some, uh, you know, uh, several people have bought the book, not millions at this point, but uh, uh, that'll be the case uh, soon. But I think I did it. It was mostly for me and it was for a couple of reasons. One, I wanted to share the information with other people. And also my inner critic was kicking up probably the most it has in years when I started writing this book. Okay. And it's been kind of a, a long term. I'm 66 years old. And you know, when people are 14 and they're writing their memoirs, I still don't think I'm old enough to write a memoir, you know, but, but it's a little bit autobiographical, you know, or a lot of it is autobiographical, but I make the points and I have a workbook with it. So people can actually do some exercises with each chapter and develop some things. And, and I think, um, the other thing that I think is in addition to the routine, it's kind of in my mind, routine with a purpose. So if uh, one of my quotes is that uh, life challenges are mere flickers in relation to the bright light of our clearly defined purpose. When we know what we're going for and that's what we're focused on, the other ones are kind of they're there, but you know, just I can I can deal with that, you know. It doesn't become our focus. And if we don't have that, we don't have a purpose and a, a life direction, so to speak. We're, we're kind of going around from one thing to the next. Oh, you know? So powerful. Absolutely. All right. So what's the big dream? For what? For Mike. Okay. That um, I think uh, being able to, being a grandfather and being able to support my kids from time to time emotionally or even with uh, being near them and being able to do those things. I think... Um, it's, I think there's the battle between um, uh, Dylan Thomas, poet, said something about, don't go gently into that dark night, fight, fight against the dying of the light. And then I think on the other hand, yeah, and also how do you age gracefully? Mm. You know, I, 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 I try to find that balance. And I think that's what I hope that, um, you know, uh, that I'll have made my mark nice. uh, on, on some people's lives. Love it. All right, so you spent an hour having coffee with a young entrepreneur and you want to leave him with Mike's words of wisdom. What would you share? 
Well, now you've already used me up. Um, <laughs> let me see here. Um, I think I would go back to, um, you know, again, uh, view life challenges as mere flickers in relation to our bright light of our clearly defined purpose. If we can't, don't know what our purpose is, that's okay too. But don't then self-medicate to get away from thinking about what it is because that's uncomfortable and we try to run erase all levels of discomfort. And so the more we do it, and then how can we help other people? If we're a teacher, you know, if we're every time a kid skins their knees, it's a major medical event, you know, and we have the parents have to be called and rushed to the, you know, I mean, it's a dang scrape knee, you know, uh, it, it lowers that. And I think all of our tolerance for society. So when we go out and people are in line at the, the grocery store and they start getting agitated with each other, you know, about stupid stuff. And it's just, I think it's because we can't tolerate any discomfort. You know, there's like this guy, you know, the old lady walking down the street. I get, what, what the heck's the matter with her? You know, well, let's, let's take a look at those things and say, how do I live gracefully throughout the course of my day? Hmm. Well, and being able to ask, why is that making me uncomfortable? <laughs> like, yeah. 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 So but great. you have to know that you're uncomfortable and then you have to ask the question because people are just like, well, that's, well, she, she irritated me. And she upset me. Right? Oh, yeah. So good. Mike, thank you so much for taking the time. Sure. What a great conversation. I I appreciate your stories and definitely great. love love the concept of um, your book and, and speaking to that voice. Yep. Can I can I just tell you that I just want to give myself a little shameless plug Do it. for my website is MikeMcCaffreyCoaching.com. And also I'm coming out. I do have a, a, a not live nine week course that I'm going to be teaching based on the book. And it's uh six group sessions and then weeks three six and nine will be one-on-one -on -one coaching with me that's going to be coming up pretty soon and so i'll be hoping to uh, uh encourage other people to take a look at these things in their lives and make some improvements absolutely we'll include those in the description as well great i appreciate it so um well it's been wonderful robert i sure appreciate the invitation and uh Look forward to connecting again in the future. Absolutely, Mike. Thank you. If you enjoyed the show, please like, subscribe, or leave a review. We have a free gift for you at addvaluemindset.com. That's addvaluemindset.com. We've collected some of the best mindset secrets shared by successful entrepreneurs on our podcast, and we want to give them to you for free. addvaluemindset.com. In our next episode, Stephanie Fee is a certified nutritionist and master enthusiast, exploring many modalities, constantly learning more about the science of happiness and its relationship to health, longevity, and nutritional sciences. Today, Stephanie's vision is for people to sit down to the table without labeling how they eat and discover a life beyond the scale.